You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. I'm going to tell you a story, and it's important to me that you remember the details of the story, because if you forget them, you may miss just how much of a moron I am. Okay, uh, it goes like this. We have a friend. Uh, Her name is Kirsten. She's a great gal. She had one child, and then they got pregnant and had another child. Two weeks after they had that child, uh, we were up on the list for uh, the meal train thing. So, right, our ticket got called, and uh, it was our night to bring food over. Now, we were having uh, drama of our own at the house with one of our kiddos, and so I was sent, commissioned by my wife to take the casserole, right? You get in the car, and you head that way. So I, I got in the car. I went to Kirsten's house, and uh, she was uh, there. The baby was upstairs sleeping. I knock on the door. I bring it in. Good talk. Nice to see you. Oh, thanks for the food, all of that. It was a great, warm uh, conversation. At the end of that, she walks me back to my car. We're walking back to my car. Everything is almost over. It went perfect. It was amazing. And then I turn around to Carson, my friend, who just had a baby two weeks ago, and I look at her, point to her stomach, and say, hey, what'd your baby do again? (laughs) We haven't talked in a while, me and her. Um, She, uh, sweet gal, from what I remember. Now, At that point, listen, it doesn't matter how good the casserole was because I've ruined everyone's life in that moment. I had forgotten the reason I brought the casserole. Why am I here? On so many levels, this is the dumbest story ever, right? Like, why did you point to a woman's stomach? Why did you, and don't you know, it was just awful all around. But here's the thing. I got the small stuff right, right? I brought the food. I got casserole. But I had majored on the minors, right? My job was to major on the minor, on the major. I'm here because you had a baby. And I totally missed that. I had majored on the minors. And when you do that, things tend to go wrong. Now, I'm telling you that this morning for a couple reasons. One is, please pray for me. I mean, my goodness, what is, what is broken inside me? Uh, but the second reason I'm telling you that is because we are now, if you've been with us uh, in the series, we're now 13 chapters deep into 1 Corinthians. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we've been in this book for a while now. I hope it's been good for you. And we're 13 chapters in. And in many ways, on the surface, on the outside, we're looking at a really remarkable church. It may be hard to believe because we know the backstory, but on the outside, they've got all the trappings of, of a remarkable church. This is a church with some really great pastors and teachers around them. They're running with like a, a good crew of seemingly competent people. They're operating in the spiritual gifts. They're, they're doing a lot of the sacramental things that make up a church service. Those things are happening on the outside, and yet beneath the surface, there's something going on that we've been seeing chapter to chapter to chapter. There's a dysfunction here. There's a a fatal flaw that is occurring in the life of this church, and we named it right at the beginning of the series as what it is, what Paul calls it, which is pride. He repeatedly looks at this church and saying, you have an issue, and the issue is pride, or he uses the word arrogance over and over. There's an arrogance coursing through the life of this church. It's something that uh, uh, A.W. Tozer, uh, the author and, and pastor, he, he calls the self-life. There's this, 
there's this me first self life impulse in the church and it was loud and it was demonstrating to the world that though they had some of the minor things right, they had missed the major thing. And this is a real problem. And what Paul's saying in chapter 13 is, hey, you may be bringing lots of stuff to the table, but if you don't have the main thing, it doesn't matter how good the casserole is. It doesn't, it's not that important because you've missed the major. You have majored on the minors and that's not okay. So what is the main thing that they're to major on? Well, you know the text, right? The main thing he's going to say they're missing is love. You have missed out on the, the main thing that this whole Christian life is about. It's about love. Love is the major that you're not majoring in. And Paul's going to show us four things about love in this chapter that we got to get straight if we want to navigate this life well as Christians. He's going to show us the priority of love, the posture of love, like what it's like, uh, the permanence of love and the problem of love, the priority the posture, the permanence, and then the problem of love. So if you have your Bibles, it's important for you to have it out, look at it with me. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and looking at verse 1. We're going to be thinking about the priority of love. He says this in verse 1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So what Paul's going to do at the beginning of this chapter is he's going to be speaking in a lot of hyperbole here. He's going to be reaching to sort of the extremity of human impressiveness. And he's going to be grabbing some of that stuff to show these impressive looking people that, hey, even the most impressive looking person are functionally nothing if they're not operating in love. And so he starts by uh, picking on the, the gift of tongues. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... Now, most scholars think that this was the big problem uh, with respect to spiritual gifts in the life of the church in Corinth. They had a, a tongues problem. Uh, we're going to take a deeper look next week into like what it is and isn't. So that's not what today's sermon is. But one thing is for sure about the gift of tongues. Uh, people knew it then. People know it now. The gift of tongues, if it's anything, it is definitely a public facing type of gift, isn't it? Right? It's, a pu it's, it's got a little flasher edge to it. It's one that you hear. It's one that if it's actually true and operational, that, that means that God himself is like downloading content into you. Like it's, a, it's kind of a baller gift, right? That's the, and, and they are operating in this as like one of the chief things that they're doing. And Paul's grabbing this spiritual gift of tongues that's happening in the life of the church. And he's saying, hey, even if, I want you to imagine, even if I am varsity, at the gift of tongues. I'm speaking in all human languages. I'm speaking in heavenly languages. Even if I'm doing all of that, if I lack love in my motivation for doing it, I'm actually just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, if what drives me in my gifting is not love, it actually doesn't matter how many supernatural sounds are coming out of my mouth. It's actually useless. It's just noise. You might as well be banging pots and pans together because it's that pointless. I mean, that's a shocking thing to say, that, that you could operate in a supernatural gift, in a supernatural way, and it somehow be offensive to God. Just keep, keep that in mind. That's what he's saying here. He presses the point further when he goes to verse 2 by, by talking about prophetic powers and mysteries, knowledge, faith. He says, if I have prophetic powers, and understand, listen to this, all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. 
So think about what he said. He's, again, uh, he's speaking in hyperbole, but he's saying, imagine if I knew everything, right? This isn't even possible. He's talking about something that's really only uh, accessible by God himself. So really what he's saying is, imagine I have God-like powers and the ability of knowledge and wisdom and mystery and insights and prophecy. Imagine I'm operating like God in that way. If I am doing those things, but I lack love, he says, I actually, in the final analysis, I am nothing. This is a guys, you can, he, the Bible says you can do supernatural things. You can be an X-Men on the outside, but if on the inside you are not driven by love, it's actually an offense to God. It's an offense to him. Even self-sacrifice, which like definitionally sounds pretty selfless, Right? if it's not driven by love, can actually be selfish. He says, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So just consider this one. Do do you have a theological category for, I could jump in front of a bus for that person and it actually not please God. I could lay down my life for my friend and it be an offense in God's eyes. If you don't, you should develop that category because that's exactly the type of thing that Paul is saying. It's shocking. Who talks like this? This is what he's, what is he saying? Here's what he's saying. The inner life is the life that matters. It's the inner life that matters. Motives matter in this thing we call Christianity. God, God doesn't just care that we do a thing. He cares why we do a thing. It sets Christianity apart in so many ways. It's not just about your motor, you getting stuff done. It's about your motive. Why are you driving in the first place? It really matters to God. So he's, uh, let me say it a different way. God is not interested in making professional Christians. Do you know what I mean by that? A professional Christian is somebody who's just killing it on the outside. You got all the trappings on the outside, but inside you're an idolater. Inside you're a self-worshipper. Inside you're a God belittler. That's a professional Christian. Of, of all the things that I'm concerned about in my own life, it's this. I'm terrified of that prospect of being a professional Christian. That I, that I would be committed to outside stuff, but have no interest in the inner life, the inside stuff. And Paul is saying, it's the inside life that's the priority. Is love in the driver's seat for you or not? Let me, let me say this. It will not help you in this life to use your gifts in this church. It will not help for you to be nice. It, it won't even help for you to have immense amounts of faith. If you are a loveless person, the Bible says you're actually wasting your time. It's because mo- motives are the thing that matters. The priority is not our gifts or our sacrifices. It's actually love. Well, th- these are serious claims. This, this is big boy stuff. So if, if that's true, it follows that we would want to ask the question, what? Well, what the heck is it then? If love is really the difference maker, if, if I can do all the right things on the outside, and then in the final analysis, be damned, be, be not with God, be, be an offense to him, if that's possible, and the, the one thing that makes a difference is love, then I need to know what love is. What is love? And that's exactly where Paul's heading. What is the... What is the posture of someone who loves? 
What are the attributes that make it up? He gives us 15 of them in this text. We're gonna work really fast through them, but as we do it, I want you to just do this with me. I've been doing this all week as I've been prepping this sermon, just opening myself up to the Holy Spirit, just going, Lord, what am I missing here? In what ways are these things not true of me, not showing up in me? So as we go through it, just be asking yourself that. Maybe have a pen and paper right in your phone, like what the Lord prompts you to identify. Uh, 15 attributes or 15 postures of love. What is the posture of love? Here's the first one. He says in verse four, love is patient. That word means long-tempered. It means anger shows up late to the party in you. It's not that anger doesn't show up. It's not that you can't be bothered by something. It's that you've got a long fuse before you get there. Patience means I don't snap. It's not cold hot in me. There's a, there's a long wick. There's a long fuse here. I can, I can ride a long time with you. Before, and, we, and we know that it's not about not ever being angry because God was perfectly patient and yet he was angry all the time with Israel, right? So we have a category for that, but it, it means that we are long-tempered people. We don't just snap. Love is patient. Love is kind, he says. Here's my observation about our tribe. And we do have a tribe, by the way. If you're in this church, you're, you're kind of part of a, an ecosystem, a tribe of folks who who like this kind of church. And this kind of church is a church, that, and this, this is not a knock, I'm, I'm for this. But we, we are uh, people who love the Bible, love sound doctrine, love good teaching, love truth. We lo- I love that, yes, I will die for those things. But, but, Love is something that has those things and yet doesn't miss this. Intermingled with all of that is kindness. That we would be a kind people in our commitment to the truth. That we would be marked by kindness. And this is hard because our culture and sort of like the conservative impulse even in the West is just not flavored like this. That whole Ben Shapiro, uh, facts don't care about your feelings thing, right? On the one hand, I agree with it. Facts don't care about your feelings. But what I am committed to is that the Bible teaches, turns out love does care about your feelings. Here's what that means. It doesn't just matter that you say the truth. It matters how you say the truth, right? Um, it's, a, it's not just a word spoken that's praiseworthy. It's a word aptly spoken. It's a fitting word. It doesn't just matter that I've got all the details, right? That my doctrine is all square. It matters that when I address it in you, there's a winsomeness. There's a tenderness, there's a kindness. The Lord's bondservant, Paul says in 2 Timothy, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. Patient went wronged. That's the mark of a person who loves, that we have kindness intermingled with our convictions. It's a very important thing that we can miss. Love does not envy, he says. Love doesn't envy. Uh, This can be translated sometimes as covet. It can be translated as, as be jealous. But the point is this, there's a contentment in a loving person. It's this, I don't need what you have to be okay. I don't need uh, your stuff. I don't need your giftings. I don't need your successes to be okay. A loving person um, is a person who stops seeing people as objects to surpass, right? Uh, that, that is somebody who is not envious, right? So, so love doesn't envy, but it also doesn't Boast. Now, this is interesting. Boasting is really kind of the reverse of envy, isn't it? Where envy is, I want what you have. Boasting is, I want you to want what I have. 
That's what, that's what boasting is. I want to set before you my best qualities, <laughs> Instagram. And I, and I want you to look at them. And I want you to go, wow, where did she get that? How does she do? Who is that guy? How did he get that? I want you to have that. I want you to envy me. That's really what boasting, that's what's at bottom of boasting. And and the the impulse of love is to go, no, I, I don't want to present in such a way that I'm beckoning you to envy me. I don't want to call out of you sin. I don't want want that at all. And the reason is it's because of the next line. We don't boast because Love is not arrogant. Love's not arrogant. Now, I love this. Uh, the, the word here literally translates from the Greek as uh, I inflate. That's, that's what this word means in the Greek. And I love that imagery, the, the idea of inflating. Think about that image for a moment of, of inflating or being, we might say, being puffed up, right? The, what, what is that? It, it's, uh, it's this impulse in me that says, I want to look big, right, to you. I want to present to you. I want you to perceive me as substantive and substantial and sizable. That's the, so I, I, I blow up, right? I get big because then you think a certain way about me, but there's, a, there's this weird irony to the whole thing, isn't it? Because think about that puffed upness, that inflation thing. Think about it like, um, like a balloon, right? A balloon is something that is big, you blow it up and it gets big. It presents as big. But what is the irony? What's the inside of that balloon like? What's happening on the inside? It's literally nothing. It's just air. It's just air on the inside and yet it's so large and predominant on the outside. And that is what arrogance is. It's looking big on the outside, but inside you're empty. That's what arrogance is. And when you're empty on the inside, you know what you begin to do? You begin to see people as things to fill you up. You begin to treat people like gasoline, right? I I need you to affirm me and build me up because when you do, my tank gets full and I've got an empty tank now. I need that to fill on up. So I'm going to boast and I'm going to brag and I'm going to present large so that you will fill up this empty reservoir I have in me. But do you see a loving person is not like that. They're a person actually who can come to the table with a full tank Right? And when I have a full tank, now I no longer need something from you. You're not a commodity to me. You're not gasoline to me anymore. Now I can actually want something for you. Now I can actually be curious about you instead of always demanding that you be curious about me. I remember we were in a home group uh, years ago here at Stonegate, and we led the college group for a while. And there was a girl in our college group, a sweet girl who... Um, she said this line in passing, and it has just stuck with me for years. You may have heard it before, but she says, I, I'm really striving to become the most interested person in the room, not the most interesting person. And that so hit me as a guy who loves to be in a room where I'm the most interesting person in the room. I know it's hard to believe, but, uh, but I, I have that impulse in me, and I heard that, and I thought, gosh, that, that, feels, that sounds so attractive to come into a space and not go, hey, will you look at me? But for me to go, no, I actually want to see you. And so I would say for the past uh, maybe almost decade now, I have become, and, and if you're friends with me, you know this about me, I have become a 
question-obsessed person. If you hang out with me for any amount of time, you're going to get 15 questions. Because it's my way to militate against this thing inside me that says, I want the cameras here. I want you to fill me up. I'm going to try to get really curious about you. Tell me about what's going on with you. I've noticed this in your life. Why don't you tell me your story? Because I found it's been the way that I get to war against that impulse to inflate in me. And you, you know what love does? Love gets really curious about other people. It doesn't demand that you get curious about me. It, it says, no, I'm actually going to get curious about you. It's actually a really wonderful attribute to show up in a human life. So love is not arrogant or, verse 5, rude. Love is not rude. Rudeness is being unwilling to change my behavior, even if it makes you uncomfortable. It's, it's not caring how my presence or my actions affect a room. Th- that's what rudeness is. And here's what that means, kids. Turns out manners are biblical. Verse five, just said it, right? It's just in the text. I don't know what to tell you, sorry. But, but, it's, but it's more than just like, hey, don't burp at the table. That's not, like it's beyond that. We're talking about rudeness, like a, a conscientiousness when I'm in spaces with other people about how I am felt and perceived. I mean, just think about, think about you in public spaces. For a moment. Think about you with your friends or your family or meetings. You, you tell me if this is you at all. Is this just me? Where they only see one third of my face for half the time? Can I tell you, when your impulse is to live on this guy, when you're with other people, and I am so guilty of this. I'm actually embarrassed by how bad I am at this. When you live on this in public spaces, that's not you being an introvert. That's you being rude. It's actually unbiblical and it's unloving. That's what the scripture says. And what, what many of us, I think, need to do in this room is repent of that posture. Because it's not just, oh, I'm checking out and I gotta check the stocks. It's, it's actually, there's a word for it. And it's called rudeness. And we need to move away from it because that's not the posture of a loving person. We want to be in spaces and have people feel welcomed and loved by us. So I'm conscientious about how I present in a space, yeah? So love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way, which means it's not self-serving. There's a flexibility to love. It can bend. I can do what you want to do. It's okay. We don't have to do my way. We can watch the rom-com. I don't need to watch 300. It's okay. Let's do that thing, right? It's not irritable. Irritability means you've made my life difficult somehow and now I get to punish you with my bad attitude. Uh, it's uh, interesting. Actually, the, the Greek word for this uh, here in the text is uh, teenager. Is that, is that right? No, wait. Oh, no, that's a, another text. Um, but here, here's the point. It's a sin. It's a real problem, it's, and we are, we are responsible for our irritability. Now, I put it like that on purpose because, and this may step on some toes, forgive me, but it is uh, very in vogue right now to pin our bad attitudes on stuff other than ourselves. It is very in vogue right now, again, I'm sorry if this offends you, to pin our bad attitudes on stuff like my diet. Oh, I'm sorry, I just didn't eat enough omega-3 today, right? I'm grumpy. It's like, no, no, you're grumpy because you're a sinner and you're living in your flesh and you need to repent and trust Jesus. That's, that's what you need, right? We cannot point to 
things outside of us when the Bible says, no, the, the issue is actually in you. You are irritable and it's not loving. We need to move away from, I'm not saying that food can't set us up for losses. You should probably eat an apple. I'm yes to that. I'm just saying you're responsible for you. That's what Paul is saying. Irritability is a symptom or a sign that we're actually not walking in love with other people. And we need to keep ourselves in check with that because it's a very serious thing to God. Now, uh, he says after irritability that love is not resentful. This is a big one. This is a big one for relationships. This is a, um, this is a bookkeeping term. It, it means something like um, it doesn't calculate the bad. Love doesn't calculate the bad. This is keeping a, a, a mental ledger in your life of the ways people have wronged you. This is keeping long tabs on folks. This is, this is the person who, who it's very easy for me to go back and grab 2017 and put it on this moment and remember what you did to me there. I can't remember anything about myself in 2017, but for some reason, I've got the corner on the market on all things you, right? This, this is a resentful person. Can I tell you, this, this is what makes so many marriages struggle. I've, I've pastored here for a number of years now. I've, I've done lots of marriage care with folks at this church. And my observation is one of the things that is killing us in our marriages is we keep such long tabs on each other. We're just, the list is so long that, that 2017 is really accessible to me. And I am willing to bring it back on this moment. And I'm not saying pain didn't happen back there. And I'm not saying significant pain didn't happen back there. But the point of this word is to say that there should be an impulse in a loving person to keep that list really short, that I'm not gonna lord your past mistakes over you at every moment. It will ruin me and it will ruin you. It's not life-giving and it's not loving. It's resentment and it needs to go away. And so my question is, how are you doing at this? How, how, how accessible is 2017 to you? Right? Do, you, are you? do you just constantly go back there and grab stuff and bring it to the present? Or can you be a person who walks in a way that says, no, I'm gonna keep that list really short with my wife, with my husband, with my friend, with my girlfriend, with my co-worker. I'm going to keep that list short because it's not profitable for them. It's the glory of a man, the scripture says, to overlook an offense. That's what we want to be marked as, people who can not live in resentment, but who can overlook offenses. Now, at this point, you may be going, okay, Jimmy, I, I I've got a picture. I'm seeing kindness. I'm seeing forgiveness. I'm seeing forgetting wrongs, and that's cool, but like, dude, does love have a spine at all? Like, this is the squishiest, most libby thing I've ever heard. Like, what what, is there, is love just a pushover with like no convictions? Is that what this is? And Paul's about to say, no way is that what I'm saying. Love actually, all those things are true and love actually cares deeply about things like justice. Deeply. So he says in verse six, hey, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing or injustice, but rejoices with the truth. See, this is the truth about love. Real love, biblical love, is not a caricature like our culture makes it out to be. Our culture tends to flatten it all and tries to make everything so two-dimensional, so black and white, so that, so that everything's on this polar opposite spectrum. So you have the like real conservative camp over here, the moralistic camp over here that goes, no, what love is, is it's truth-telling. I'm gonna tell you the truth, man. And we talked about that. that, that that's not really love at all. That's a, that's a type of a distortion of love. But then you come over, so maybe the solution is to come all the way over to the other side. So it's maybe the more progressive-minded person, the more liberal-minded person. Over here, it's like, no, it's 
all grace, it's all compassion, it's all kindness. And, and what, what the truth is, it's more complex than that. It's not so flat and 2D. What Paul is saying here is, it is both kindness and conviction. It, it is compassion and I'm gonna hold to the truth at all costs, it is both of these things. Love in the Bible is so three-dimensional. You cannot get away with living at just this camp or just that camp over here. I was uh, finishing the sermon yesterday at Starbucks and I look on the wall and there's a sign that says, kindness is all that matters. And I was like, I mean, it's one-fifteenth of what matters, right? I mean, it matters, but there's like 14 other things to say. And, and that's what I'm saying. There's a complexity and a three-dimensionality to love that we, we can't miss. We can't live in these extremes. It's killing us as a culture, isn't it? We, we're constantly polarizing, but, but love has the ability to, to say a hard thing and to say it in a way that would win you over. To say it with tears in my eyes, right? That, that's what real love is like. And then he wraps up uh, by saying verse seven, these four statements. He says, love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So I'm, I'm going to believe the best about you. Like when there's a problem, I'm gonna show up to the table, not, not with suspicion as my impulse, but with curiosity as my impulse, right? Especially if I'm dealing with a believer, a person who's in Christ, that means that you have the spirit of God living inside you. So how could I dare come to you with suspicion when God himself is, is meant to be operating inside you? I wanna come instead with, with a posture that says this, I probably don't know some things here. I'm gonna ask some more questions. Right? I'm not coming in hot anymore. I'm gonna believe all things about this. I say this more in counseling than any other verse. This verse right here. Are you believing all things about your spouse today? Are you, are you enduring all things? Are you bearing, are you hoping all things? Because if that person is saved, we gotta come with curiosity, not suspicion. We gotta come with a posture that says, I wanna see what's going on here and give you the benefit of the doubt because that's exactly how I would want to be treated in this moment. And, and I'm not gonna just come in hot with a lot of suspicion and, and thinking that I know the whole narrative. That's not how this works. We're gonna believe all things, bear all things, endure all things, hope all things. All of this, all these 15 things, Paul says, all of this is what love is and it's what we should be majoring on. You have minored you have majored on the minors and minored on the majors, he's saying. And, and he's saying, you've got it all wrong. We have to prioritize love because, he tells us, it's not just that love is better or more awesome. It is. But, he's about to tell us, it's because love will ultimately outlive every spiritual gift. It will outlive it. There's a permanence to love. And that's where we're turning next, this permanence of love. He says in verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. The reason we've got to prioritize love is because it is the one thing, he says, that's not going anywhere. It's, it's sticking around. But all these things you guys obsess about, the, the gift of tongues and prophecy, and God, I got a word of knowledge for you and all of these things. All of those things are great, but all of those things will ultimately one day finish 
they will be done. And then he gives some analogies to make sense of this. He says, it's kind of like being a child. When I was a child, I I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. When I was a kid, I used to act like a kid. But but one day, you you grow up. And and when you grow up, you got to put on your big boy pants. You got got to leave the the small time stuff behind. And he's saying that's kind of what what love is in comparison to the spiritual gifts. It's not that the gifts are bad. It's that they're fitting only for a certain stage of life. And you, church, right now are in the stage of life where it's appropriate to operate in the spiritual gifts. It's fitting right now, but it will not be fitting one day. One day, the gifts just won't fit. And all you'll have to wear in that day is love. He compares it to a mirror. He says, it's kind of like looking in a mirror. When you're looking at a mirror, you're looking at a reflection of the thing you want to see, but it's not the thing itself, is it? He says, it's kind of a dim reflection Right, but there will be a day coming. He's saying when that mirror will be put away, when you'll be able to engage with the thing your heart was made for face to face, and when you can be with it face to face, what you'll find is I don't need the mirror anymore. Here's what Paul's saying. Here's his point. Do you know what the spiritual gifts are? The spiritual gifts are a technology. That's that's one way to think about what these things we call spiritual gifts are. They are a technology. God has given us a technology in this window of time before he returns and after he's resurrected, this church age we're in, he's given us these gifts as a technology to help get us closer and closer to the God of love, as close as we can get. But what Paul's saying is there is a day coming when we'll finally be with him. We'll be with the God of love. And when that day comes... Well, we won't need the technology anymore. I remember when, when I was back in my touring days, uh, there, uh, Apple came out with a, a, a product, a new update thing, and it was called FaceTime, and uh, it kind of blew my mind. So you're telling me, uh, Apple, that I can look at my phone, and I can be looking at my wife and daughter and my dog, and they can be looking at me, and I can talk to them while I'm driving. Like, while, while in a moving vehicle, I'm laying in a bunk and I can have a conversation with my wife and see her face. You're telling me that can happen. And Steve Jobs said, yes. And I said, I will take two. And well, that's all I did. I mean, we were just constantly on the phone, FaceTiming all the time. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. Okay, we both hang up. We, I just, we loved it. But can I tell you what I never did? Here's something I never did. I never finished a tour, got off the bus, walked home, knocked on the front door. Kelly opened it. She's there with the baby and the dog. And it's, hey. And I go, one second, babe. Kelly. Hey, girl. Oh, I miss you. I just wish I could hold you. Never did that. You know why? Because that's dumb. That's really weird. Why is that dumb? Because I have her. I'm with the one I meant to be with and the technology was only good so far as it got me closer to her. But when I'm with her, I don't need the tech. Do you see, that's what a spiritual gift is like. It's a technology that, that is meant to get you closer to the heart of God as we learn more about who he is through teaching, through prophecy, through words of knowledge, through expressions of faith. All of those things, we're getting closer and closer to the heart of God, but one day we'll be with him, y'all. And when you're with him, you don't need the tech anymore. All that's left is love. 
And if all that's left is love, it means that we need to make love the priority. You need to major on love in a way that you don't quite major on the spiritual gifts. It's not that you don't pursue them, but more than anything, we pursue love. We get good at love. Get good at that now. Now, if that's true, that leaves us with a problem. And this is where we're going to end. There's a big problem, if that's true. The problem is, it doesn't work to just say to a person, be loving. Turns out that doesn't work. And the reason I know that it doesn't work is because this chapter has been read at American weddings for like 100 years. And the divorce rate's still 50%. So we know the content. I know it doesn't work because pretty much every religion in the world can get behind everything I've said in this sermon to this point. Almost every religion in the world is basically saying, hey, can you be nice to her, right? Can, can we get along? Like, stop, stop doing bad stuff, start doing good stuff. Everybody believes that. There's nothing supernatural about that. And yet, we're still killing each other. There's, there's still heartache. There's still wars. There's still all of these things. So it's not working. The problem of love is you cannot live love until you meet love. That is the problem with love. And this is where another New Testament writer serves us so well. The Apostle John writes in one of his letters to the churches. He writes in 1 John 4, starting in verse 8. Just listen to these words. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What is John saying? He's saying, if you want to be a loving person, you you won't become one by trying to be a loving person. You become a loving person by meeting the loving person. When we get in relationship with the loving person, the one who the Bible actually names as love, God is love. When you collide with that being and you watch that love unravel and unfold and unfurl at the cross where he sent his son to be the wrath absorber for your sins. When you watch that happen, you will change. It won't be overnight. It will be incremental. It'll be over a lifetime, but you will go from no patience to more patience to more patience. You will go from no kindness to more kindness to more kindness. You will move from not caring that much about truth to caring more about truth, caring more about truth. You will grow in this, but it happens not by white knuckling. It happens by, happens by a vision of the one who is love and displayed love for you on the cross. We change, empowered by the Holy Spirit, as we gaze on Jesus, the Son of God, and are conformed into his image. That's how you grow into love. I remember when I met my wife and we got married, and I just started watching her live her life. She's one of the most loving people I've ever met. She's a, an extraordinary human being, and she does all kinds of bizarre things I've never seen people do. Like every Christmas, she buys gifts and writes notes and gives cash to our garbage guys. Gets out there at like 5 a.m. like, hey guys, before you go. I'm like, what do you do? Go to bed. She's like, no, I, 
I, I, this is what I do. And it, she's been doing this our whole marriage. And at one point I asked her, what do you, wh- why, where did this come from? And the answer was really simple. It's the same thing she'd tell you if you asked her. She said, well, I, I do that because my mom did it. I, I just grew up with a mom who was constantly doing that thing. So like the trash man, the cleaning lady, whoever, just, yeah, we're going to bless you. You're in our life. You're helping out. I want to help you. I want to serve you. And so I've just seen that model. So I'm just going to walk in that pattern. It's just fitting. It's what, it's what I have seen my whole life. And as I've gazed at that, I've, I've just been changing that image. Do you see that is what God is putting before us in this text? He's saying, hey, do you want to know love? Do you, do you want to be changed into a way that someone could say, but no, that really is a loving person right there. You need to gaze at love. You need to stare at love in the face of Jesus Christ who loved himself and gave himself on your behalf and you will change. It's the way you come into this thing we call Christianity by gazing at him with the eyes of faith for the first time and it's the way you grow as a loving person while you're in Christianity by gazing at him, the one who gave his life for you. It's how we change and that's what he's inviting us into today. Yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you for displaying love at the cross. It is the, it's so common um, to talk about in a church that sometimes it can lose the, the wonder of it all. But Lord, I'm, I'm just praying that you would restore to us the wonder of, of love made manifest at the cross so that we could, with the eyes of faith, empowered by your Holy Spirit, change into that vision of love. So God, would you help us in the ways we need it? Rescue us from self, that arrogant self-life, and bring us into a relationship. Bring Bring us into the heart of love. You are love, and we wanna look like you. So make us look like you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.